It was just the 4th of May. Hi there, and welcome to Forgotten Seeds, where we take a look at little microbursts of culture that burned hot and then vanished. Sometimes they left brilliant little legacies. Sometimes they left nothing. We're going to talk about both. This first season is called The Freaks in the Barn, and we're talking about the glam psychedelic explosion of Sioux City, Iowa in the early 1970s. And this episode, number two, is called The Seeds. I'm Keith Pilly. So, last week we talked about David Bowie and his backing band, and how a mix of tour logistics and bus troubles kept them stranded in Sioux City for several days in between dates on the tour that introduced Ziggy Stardust to America. While they were there, they holed up in one of Sioux City's nicest hotels and held court at a nearby dive bar where Bowie, Mick Ronson, and the other Spiders from Mars spent countless hours talking and jamming with a bunch of local musicians and weirdos. Then their bus got fixed, and they pumped their bus driver full of speed and shot off to California for a show, leaving a collection of dazed, inspired prairie freaks behind them. This week, we're going to take a look at what those inspired freaks got up to. Danny Hoska was born in Samaritan Hospital in Sioux City in 1949. His younger brother Billy in 1951. Their mother Maggie died tragically in a house fire in 1953, leaving Danny with only faint memories of her and Billy barely any at all. Their father, James, did his best to raise the boys by himself, but he found it really tough. James Hoska was a car mechanic who had moved with Maggie to Sioux City from the Pine Ridge Reservation shortly after getting married. With Maggie gone, James felt deeply that his boys were all he had, and he worked long hours at the garage, picking up other work on the side to bring in enough money to raise the boys alone. James was painfully aware that a city, even a small one like Sioux City, was full of a whole world of trouble for a pair of largely unsupervised boys. So when Danny was 11 and Billy 9, James grabbed some money he'd set aside, took the boys to a pawn shop that doubled as a hardscrabble music store, and bought each of the boys a cheap guitar. The Hoskas had always been a musical family, and James was hopeful that the boys would stay out of trouble if they had guitars to focus on. James's hopes were well-founded. Through the 60s, as they grew up, Danny and Billy Hoska spent countless hours in the living room of their rented house, slowly gaining familiarity with their instruments. The explosion of rock and roll and the family's acquisition of a record player sped things along. By the time the brothers finished high school, both boys had worked jobs of their own in order to fund their guitar habits. Danny moved from guitar to the electric bass, while Billy steadily became an absolute master of the electric guitar, playing a Gibson SG that he'd hand-painted in swirling colors in emulation of cream guitarist Eric Clapton, and then later in the 70s when a coked-up Clapton would make some absolutely horrible public statements about immigrants, a much older Billy would switch his preference to the Gibson Flying V, but to be honest, that's outside of our story. So... By the time that Bowie and the Spiders rolled into town in 1972, Danny and Billy Hoska were well-regarded in the small but tight community of Sioux City rock musicians. In 
They didn't have a band going, but they often hung out at the local music spots like the Jockey or the Double X to join in with the frequent impromptu jams. The one knock on them, and this was sort of a strength and a weakness at the same time, was that the Hoska boys had built their styles on over 10 years of being alone in a house playing along with each other. This gave them what seemed like a telepathic ability to play off of each other, to anticipate each other's moves, and so on. But it also meant that they were so used to each other that they both seemed a little diminished if a situation led one to play without the other. But even a diminished Billy Hoska was still a hell of a guitar player. When the spiders from Mars descended on the jockey club while David Bowie sulked in the hotel on the first night that they were stranded in Sioux City, Mick Ronson and Woody Woodmansey quickly found themselves talking to the Hosker brothers. Much to my regret, I wasn't able to talk to Billy Hoska while I was researching this story, but he did talk to the Curlian Times, a Bowie fanzine in the mid-80s, and I'm going to quote him at length here. Quote, Those few nights talking to Mick and Woody changed my and my brother's lives, man. I mean the other guys, too, but Rano was the one we could really relate to. Bowie was like a really cool presence, but he was really remote. He just seemed to be like this shadow that was projected there from another world. Where Rano, he was a lot like us. Working class guy, who loved to play guitar, came at it from a really unique way. And he managed to mix being like a really grounded dude with also doing all that crazy glam shit and making it work. You walk around in shiny satin with a big gold sun painted on your forehead, that's a tight wire act. But Rano made it work, even though you could tell, talking to him, that if things had broken just a little bit differently, he would have been off fixing cars. So yeah, we just talked and talked about music and about guitar and about how you could like build a sound to convey this feeling of, I don't know, like otherness. How you could fucking rock, but also make it art at the same time and how showmanship played into that. My brother and me, we fucking love to play music. But we were really trapped in the same old horny blues thing that everyone else was doing. I mean, just, you know, fucking Zeppelin. That first night, we just talked. And then the next couple of nights, Rano and I both brought our guitars. And we just kind of fuck around on stage, jamming and trading tips. And that guy could play, man. Talking to Rano. And then listen to that fucking Ziggy record after they left. We really started thinking about what if we took music somewhere else? T-Rex, too, man. Bolin was great to try to comprehend. I absorbed all that. Tried to figure out what I could do with it. Didn't play so many notes, but made the notes that we did play matter more, maybe. Sing about how the world works and, you know, some weird-ass stories about it instead of just one more fucking song about big-leg women. We got a lot of storytellers in my family, man. And my brother, he really started tapping into that after we spent all that time at the jockey. Hell, if I say Rano was a big influence on me just because he changed the way I play guitar and write music, I suppose Bowie was probably the biggest influence on my brother because he really changed the types of stories he wanted to tell. And we both went in pretty big on their showmanship thing. You know, we're just overflowing with ideas there. We'd always loved music and always played, but after they left town... We were on fire for this different approach, and we got rolling on getting a band together as fast as we could. It was magic, man. Changed my life. End quote. The Haskas asked around the Sioux City scene for a drummer, 
and recruited a longtime scenester named Skip Chandler to play with them. Chandler was a little older than they were, and had put in some time playing jazz before switching to rock. The three of them started writing songs and practicing intensely, putting together a flamboyant, incredibly loud, glam psychedelic act that they called the Visceral Realists. By November of 1972, the Realists were playing shows at the Jockey and a couple of other little Sioux City venues, and they were blowing minds at each show. Of course, the Hoska brothers were hardly the only ones to cross-pollinate with the glam exiles at the Jockey. For a few months before Bowie and the Spiders had rolled into town, Sammy Otto, a 20-year-old self-described witch, had been a semi-regular at the place. Born in 1952, Otto had grown up in Sioux City in a troubled house. Her father, Ron Otto, was a well-to-do local lawyer, but he'd also been an abusive alcoholic who terrorized his family. During her teen years, Sammy had caught the late 60s wave of occult study, or at least the Sioux City version of that wave, as a way to cope, a thing to focus on as a distraction. And she'd moved out as soon as she was old enough, renting an apartment in downtown Sioux City. Near the Jockey Club, as it turned out. Otto eked out a living doing tarot readings and devoured every book she could get her hands on, uh, which weren't that many in Sioux City in the early 70s, on occult topics like the British magician Aleister Crowley, his group, the Ordo Templi Orientis, the rival mystical group, the Order of the Golden Dawn, and anything else in that vein that she could find. She quickly established herself as a known character in the small countercultural scene centered around downtown Sioux City. Now, I am happy to say that I was actually able to speak with Sammy Otto from her apartment in Omaha while I was researching this story. And uh, here is some of what she had to say. So you were a regular at the Jockey then? Yeah, more or less. I wasn't in there every night, but I was there enough that people knew who I was. And what was the scene like? I mean, like before Bowie. Well, don't make too much of it as, as a scene. It was a bar where people would hang out, and some of us knew each other, some didn't. People romanticize it. Maybe it got turned into something when Bowie and the spiders were stuck there. But before that happened, it was just another cruddy bar where they had music. So you were just a woman in a bar? I mean, I guess. Looking back, I probably stood out because I was the weirdo of the joint. I was pretty, you call it evangelical about the stuff that I was reading then. And I think a lot of the people at the jockey got a kick out of talking to me about that stuff. Like, what do you mean? You know, all the usual Gnostic stuff. The world isn't what it seems. There's a hidden energy to everything. There's a truer reality than we can only catch glimpses of. That whole thing. All the stuff I was singing about a few months later. And that, that went over? Well, one of the things I've always been good at was spinning a line of talk. My dad was a lawyer, and he was great with juries, and maybe I got it from him. I don't know. I guess I was offering up a point of view people weren't getting anywhere else in Sioux City. So you're like the jockey's resident occult person, and then David Bowie shows up. I know. Boy, if I hadn't already believed in fate, that sure would have tipped it over. And what was that like? It was fucking amazing. Are you kidding? Of course, Bowie only showed up the second night. The first night, it was just the spiders, and they were a trip to talk to, too, although their accents were awfully thick. But that weirdness kind of prepped us, and the second night... 
boys showed up, and it was just like this glamorous ghost coming into the room, and everyone trying to play it cool with the spiders, but boys showed up, and it was just mobbed at first. So how did you end up talking to him in that crowd? Well, in his quiet way, he was pretty good at making his wishes known and making sure people did what he wanted. And he wanted to talk to me. So, like, your rep as the house occult person preceded you, huh? Yeah, sometimes it's good to be the weirdo. So anyway, before too long, I was there in his booth with him, drinking red wine and talking about Alistair Crowley. Well, that must have been a trip. It was crazy in the best way. We talked a lot about occult stuff. He knew a lot more than I did, and I think he liked that I was really eager to hear it all. He didn't always make sense. Like, I found out as I got older that he had a lot of stuff kind of wrong. Plus, I think he was kind of coked out then. But it was fascinating just trying to surf along on the surface. It felt really validating, you know, having this glowing presence telling me that all the weird shit I believed in actually had something to it. Yeah, I bet. That sounds great. It was. And then, you know... There was a shift, and he asked me about my family a little, and then he asked me if I'd like to come back to the hotel with him. Huh. (laughs) Yeah, and you know, I'm not going to tell you about most of that, but I will tell you about this part, which I think is the reason you're talking to me. While we were back at the hotel, in the middle of doing other things, he got really serious and animated and told me I was a pure rock and roll spirit and that I absolutely had to start a band. I said, I thought he was crazy and he started telling me about this band Fanny he loved. All women, all pure rock and roll spirits. Yeah, I think I've heard a couple of their songs. They were great. Turning me on to Fanny was as important as all the books about magic he recommended. After Bowie and the Spiders left town, Otto felt like she was on a rock and roll mission. She talked to the other stunned scenesters at the Jockey and quickly got a band together, the Jawbones, with Ed Benson and Orrin Hampton on guitar, Janie Guyon on bass, Jill Rockler on the Fender Rhodes piano, and Jack Comiskey on drums. All of the Jawbones were established Sioux City scenesters. Burke and Comiskey had been playing together since high school, and everyone except Otto had played together at least once at an open jam at the Jockey. If the visceral realists took a while to coalesce as an act, Sammy Otto and the Jawbones clicked very quickly. A big part of this was that the realists' act was largely based on the delicate but aggressive musical interplay between the Hoska brothers. Sammy and the Jawbones, on the other hand, lived and died on stage on the unearthly stage presence of Sammy Otto. Because... It turned out that David Bowie had been right, or at least had convinced Sammy Otto to act as though he'd been right. Unleashed on stage, she was a pure rock and roll spirit, glamorously howling psychedelic lyrics over the wall of noise that the Jawbones laid down. It was an open secret at the time that Otto was baked out of her gourd for every show, and this just added to the mystery. Part of her standard stage act was to talk about how she was at that moment tripping on acid and how she was the second coming of the Pythia at the Oracle at Delphi, here to sing the truth from her exalted state. A small minority of Sioux City freaks and music heads couldn't get enough of this and would reliably show up at the Jockey or the Double X to hear Sammy and the Jawbones pierce the veil of reality. 
The problem was that even at these sort of counterculture bars, most of the people there just wanted to hear something that sounded approximately like the Stones. The visceral realists quickly ran into the same problem, often on the same nights as the Jawbones. These two acts did do a lot of double bills in the early days. It was a conundrum, and it was one that threatened to suffocate the Sioux City freak scene in its crib. But there was a guy at a lot of these shows, a Sioux City scenester with a deep love for the freakier side of culture and a lot of his father's money to spend. And next week, we are going to meet him. So I want you to get yourself ready for the majesty that is Big Tex Lowry, the presiding spirit of the Sioux City scene. And also, his unlikely protégés, the Prairie Maoist proto-punk band, The Thwarted. Brace yourself. In the meantime, um, as always, I'd like to ask you to spread the word about the show if this sounds interesting. Uh, you know, people need to hear about the secret cultural history of the Midwest. It's pretty important. Um, anyone in your life who is a proud prairie rocker or loves David Bowie, just hip him to this show. Right on. Thanks very much, and be well. It was just the 4th of May Everything had turned up gray We set off across the sea The thought had just occurred to me Stab up across the moon Shoots the devil's stories high